Praise the Lord. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're gearing up for a celebration of the birth of the king. And, and it's, it's, we've said this before, but every day in the year, every day in the calendar is a good day to celebrate resurrection. And every day in the year, every day in the calendar is a good day to celebrate the incarnation. And so there's not uh, a one season that we're allowed to read these verses. I mean, I remember, there's been times I've preached out of the, the Christmas story in March, and everybody gets a little nervous, like, you can't, you're not supposed to do that. That's, <laughs> we don't talk about that now. We, the, all scripture is profitable, right? So you can talk about it now. We could get up right now and talk about the crucifixion, and that would be good. But what we're going to talk about is Christmas. We're going to talk about the advent of Jesus. We're going to talk about how God chose to do this because how God chose to bring the Messiah is not uh, outside of his nature. It's not outside of the way he does everything. Even though this was an extraordinary event that is unique and it stands alone, it does fit the pattern of how God does things. And if you look throughout your Bible, you'll notice God picking places that nobody's looking for, God picking people that nobody's looking at, God doing things in seemingly small ways that, that explode into giant things that God rarely starts where you think he's supposed to start. And so when we live in a culture that looks for the signs, but they look for a different type of sign, you know, we're all looking for signs. And the believers should be looking for signs. The Bible tells us that. We should be looking for his signs, but, you know, the signs aren't the point. The signs point you to something, right? When you're headed to Edmonton and you see a sign that says Edmonton 200 kilometers, you don't pull over and say, I've arrived. Hallelujah. You know, <laughs> kids, let's go shopping. You know, you're, you're just at the sign. The sign's meant to point you to something. What the world is looking for is a sign that's obvious. What God is looking for is people that will live by faith. And so some of his signs are very obvious, and others, uh, the signs that we're supposed to see, uh, we're supposed to see them before they become obvious. You know, the scripture talks about the return of Christ, and it says that most of the world will be caught really unaware. It'll come like a thief in the night. To those that are asleep, it, it, it'll be like someone came in the middle of the night, but it says that the believers aren't meant to be surprised. That doesn't mean I know the day or the hour, but it means that I'm supposed to be expecting. I'm not supposed to be caught off guard. And so when we look at the birth of the Messiah, you know, we realize that the, most of the people that, that were looking forward to the Messiah weren't really looking forward to the Messiah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just like most, of, most Christians today are looking for the return of Christ, but they're not really looking for the return of Christ. Because there's too many flakes that have got out there and stood in Times Square saying he's going to come at 12 o'clock. Or wrote a book about how many reasons there are that he's going to come in 1988 or whatever. And so what happens is we get burnt out and we just say, well, I don't want to think about that anymore. You can't let a distraction keep you from the truth. You can't let the counterfeit keep you from the real. You can't let the, 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 the missteps and the mistakes and, and the fakes and the frauds and all the people in between. You can't let them keep you from what the words is supposed, we're supposed to be looking for. So most of Israel, at the time Jesus was born, most of them would say, we're waiting for the Messiah. But most of them are not looking for the Messiah. And so when the Messiah came, and he's showing all the signs of the Messiah, they go, nah, can't be the guy. Because they've been talking about the Messiah so much, they forgot to look for him. 
You know, in the, when the Israelites were heading to the promised land, they got real good about talking about the promised land, but it's one thing to talk about the promised land. It's another thing to go into it. So we need to, we need to especially us who've been believers for a long time, we need to be aware that our doctrine and our theology can't just be just doctrine and theology. It just can't be ideas we have. You know, there, there, are church, there are people that if you ask them, do you believe in healing? Absolutely, up and down, they believe in healing. But they're never expecting that anyone will ever be healed. They'll never deny that God does it, but they'll never expect it. You know, if, if you ask a lot of believers, is Jesus coming back? Yes, he is. But, but their life doesn't reflect that they really believe he's coming back anytime soon. Or when you talk to them, it's not something they're looking forward to. It's not something they're expecting. It's just something we're supposed to say. Now, I'm not here to judge anybody because I don't know their heart, but I know my heart. And I know there's been seasons where I wasn't anxiously awaiting the return. So I can imagine myself in the shoes of those that weren't really looking for the Messiah, but they got real good about talking about the Messiah. And when Jesus came, and we're going to look at the, the story of the shepherds in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, Luke 1 would be well worth your time because Luke 1 has one of the most beautiful prophecies about Jesus from the mouth of Zechariah. Sorry, Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father. He says something that I, I think about almost every day. He said that light would shine on those who are sitting in the shadow of death. Sunrise from on high will visit us, he says. To sit on those who, to shine on those who sit in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Such, a, such an amazing statement. And then in Luke 2, we come into the story of Mary and Joseph being moved and, and, and being put back into Joseph's hometown or home territory. And then Verse 8, we read the story of these shepherds that are in the same region. It says in verse 8, Luke 2, 8, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And you know, when we see the VeggieTales version or whatever, you know, this isn't that scary, this isn't that uh, alarming, but... Uh, you're about to find out that, that all those angels that are singing, that we have beautiful little artwork about and that, that our kids are going to reenact on the 22nd, all those angels that are singing are not just musicians. The Bible says they are the host of angels. Now, for us, we hear the word host and we think of somebody that takes us to a table, <laughs> right? But in, in the scripture, host is, is an army. So these are battle angels that happen to know how to sing. <laughs> right? And so the guy that appears in front of them is leading a whole army. And he's suddenly in front of you. You know, suddenly, I mean, you've been suddenly surprised. Listen, my seven-year-old can suddenly surprise me, and I'm shocked. Imagine <laughs> if it's this giant battle angel and the glory of the Lord that we so desire and so want to see. That, that's great when you're looking for it. But when the glory of the Lord shines all around you and the night sky lights up, yeah. well, you might be terribly frightened. Because we go into this with the presumption that everyone knows that the angels are on their side. 
You don't know that these guys are good guys or bad guys. You don't know that they like you. You just know they're here and they've got a sword, right? <laughs> they're terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, look at this. This is what you're meant to be, pay attention to. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, in other words, Bethlehem, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ, in other words, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, and there's another suddenly that's not so good if you're there. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So the question you're asking yourself, one of these shepherds is, is God pleased with me? Because you're, you're not assuming that he is. You don't know. So peace on earth to men with whom he is pleased. Okay, but, but hopefully you're clinging on to the one thing he told you to behold, which was this is good news for you. This is good news, and it's going to bring great joy to all that receive it. He said, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they'd seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in their heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Going back to that, you, I just want to say something maybe you haven't considered, but it takes a lot of faith to worship a baby. Especially... When you're claiming that that baby is the Messiah, our understanding of Messiah is very, very much based on salvation, uh, uh, going to heaven, uh, being saved from hell and the grave. Yeah, yeah, that's the way we see it. But you got to understand what they're looking for in the Messiah is a deliverer, yes. a mighty king that will set them free from the hands of their enemies. That's what they're looking for. If you read what Mary says when, when the angel says this, you're going to have a baby, read what she says. She basically says the, the, the ones that are oppressing us are going to get what's coming to them. God's finally looked down on the oppressed and the poor and said, I'm going to lift you up. And, and she's celebrating that things are turning around. So when you say the Messiah is here and you show up and the sign of the Messiah is a baby in a, in a place where animals are kept with, you know, a, a couple of young parents that obviously haven't been married as long as this lady's been pregnant and, 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 and this is in Bethlehem. And even though Bethlehem's the city of David, it's not really a place you'd go to look for power. And all of these things are adding up. And, and, and many people would say, well, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's, let's see if this comes to pass. Let's see if it's true. These shepherds took at face value what they saw, what they heard, and said, okay, all right, let's worship this baby. Let's worship this baby not, not because we see what, it, what he's going to be, not because he already is this great powerful king, but because of what the angel said he was, because of what God said this kid was, and we're going to worship a baby, and you must feel silly worshiping a baby. 
You must feel silly when, when the wise men finally came and he's a little toddler and they come to his house and they give him these presents. They treat him like a king. Yeah. That wouldn't have been too weird for them because, you know, in their culture, maybe there were kings that were born at young ages and, and because of their royalty, they would, they would honor them. But, but these guys have been in the palaces. They've been in Jerusalem. They, 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 they visited uh, King Herod and yet they come to a very common little house and visit a toddler and pay him homage. That takes faith. After the shepherds, after the shepherds came and worshipped the baby, it says they went away praising God. You, you got to wonder, what did they see that made them want to tell everybody? Right? Because I mean, in our pictures, the kid's got a halo. Mary's got a halo. Joseph has nothing. Because what has he done? He couldn't, even, he couldn't even go on Hotwire and get a room. Like, he's done nothing. So our pictures, Jesus and Mary, maybe that's a Catholic thing, I don't know. But somehow Mary comes out looking pretty good. Jesus got a little halo over his little baby head. He never wets his diaper. He's just... He's just baby talking wise sayings that they're taking. But this is a kid that probably cried while they were there, maybe stunk while they were there. I mean, I hope that doesn't wreck your Christmas story. But Jesus probably made a mess in the manger, you know? Those swaddling clothes maybe had to be replaced at some point. They see this kid, and when they leave, they praise God, and they glorify God, and they're loud about it. Would you understand that shepherds don't automatically, these are some of the poorest people in their community. They don't have credibility with everybody. So you get a bunch of shepherds going saying, hey, we saw the Messiah. Whoa, who was it? Well, it was a baby in a barn. <laughs> who, are the, who are the parents? I don't know, some random people. They weren't even from here. You know, that, that, that wouldn't have carried a lot of weight, but they weren't ashamed of it. Thank God for people that, don't hold their dignity so precious that they can't glorify God even when they know they're going to be mocked for it. What did they see that made them want to praise God loudly? It's quite simple. They saw what the angels said they'd see. They saw the sign they were supposed to see, and the rest would come later. Right after this, the book of Luke tells us that they come and bring the baby to the temple after the days of... Uh, 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 after these days are over where they're supposed to wait and then they, um, they bring him to be uh, he's circumcised and named and all of the things that they would go through they're going to dedicate him to the temple now they're going to dedicate him to God in the temple because the Bible had said you know, the, the, the law was that your firstborn would be dedicated to the Lord so they, after the days of preparation had passed they were supposed to bring him to Jerusalem bring him to the temple and present him to God so they walk in with a baby and an old man comes up to them. And, and in fact, read with me here in Luke chapter 2. Verse 21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in, conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you go back and you read where that's found in the law, that's what the poorest people give. If you could afford it, you bring two big animals. 
But if you don't have, if you can't, if you can't, you don't have access to it or you can't afford it, then God made a provision and he says, if you can't afford these big animals, you can bring two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree if you want. Like you can bring that, <laughs> the two turtle doves. Dads, dad jokes. All right. You bring your two turtle doves to the Lord. And so that's what they brought. Now, you see a family that, that can't afford the big ox or you know, can't, can't afford the big bulls, the calves or whatever. They can't, they can't afford the, the goats. They can't afford the sheep. But they, they have a couple little birds. You're probably not paying too much attention to these people. They bring in a baby. And it says here that when they bring this baby into the temple... There was a man, verse 25, in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he wasn't just someone who knew the Messiah was coming. He's somebody who's still looking for the Messiah. Righteous and devout and looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Now, every time you see Christ in the, in the New Testament, Christos is just the Greek word for Messiah. So when he hears the Lord's Christ, he's saying, I'm looking for the Messiah. I'm looking for the promise. What we've been hearing for hundreds of years, what we've been hearing for centuries and centuries and centuries, I'm looking for that. And after a while of looking, now look, when he started looking, when he started waiting, he had no promise that this would come in his lifetime. Most people died without seeing it. But God gave him a promise. You're going to see him. So all his life he waits. All his life he waits. What if the last thing you saw before you died was the promise you've been praying for all your life? It's a bit of a bummer. You spent most of your life not having it. Right? We all want the promises on the front end, and then we can just praise God on the back end. But life is about holding on to the promises of God step by step every day. And when you see the manifestation of one, when you see it come to pass, you're not done. You're not over. You're hanging on to what God's got in front of you. I don't think Simeon said, now I've received the promise. I think he considered the promise received from the moment he started believing. But he says this in verse 27. He came into the spirit in the temple, and when he, the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms, I'm assuming he has permission, and he blessed God, and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now, hang on. My eyes have seen your salvation. Most people would say, no, they haven't. You saw a baby. You didn't see the Romans kicked out. You didn't see people delivered. You didn't see any of the things we've been waiting for. All you saw was a baby. You know, we, we, this past month, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, uh, through Hebrews uh, 10, 11, and 12, where it talks about in Hebrews 11, those that lived their whole life looking at the promise of God. and Many of them died but before they got to see the reality of it, but they saw it from far off. Men like Joseph. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, Joseph, by faith, said, you make sure you take my bones with you when you go to the promised land. Like he's just happy that his bones get to go. 
right? I mean, there's another character in the Bible that, that, that he's a king and, and, and he pleads with God, please, please don't let me die. God, I'll, I want to live a little bit longer. And God says, you're going to live a little bit longer, but here's the deal. Here's something you got to know, that your homeland's going to be taken away. It won't happen in your lifetime, but it'll happen in, in your grandkids' lifetime. Your kids and your grandkids are going to see it. And this king died and said, well, thank God it doesn't happen in my lifetime. I can't blame him, but that's not a good attitude. You see, the people of faith in the, in, that, that we're told about in the Bible, they... They saw things from far off and they said, if my kids get to see it, if my grandkids, if my descendants get to see it, it's as good as mine. I'm getting to partake in it. They realize that this is a great story that God is writing. And, and so Simeon just sees a baby who's not yet doing any miracles. He's not raising the dead. He's not preaching great sermons. All he's doing is just sitting there. My wife never let me forget that when Moses was really little, I really enjoyed spending time with Moses. But one time she said, you know, are you having fun playing with Moses? And he was just so new, there's nothing he could do. He didn't do any tricks. He didn't do anything. And I said something because I was sleep deprived and tired. I said, I love him, but I'm not having fun. He's just a lump right now. And she's never let me forget that I say, said that. Like, so I didn't get world's number one dad mug that year. You know? She'll say now, are you going to go play with Moses? Yeah. She goes, well, he's not a lump anymore, is he? <laughs> little baby Jesus was a little more than a lump. He's just there. He's not doing anything for Simeon. He's, he doesn't say, Simeon, come here. I want to bless you. You know, he doesn't. It's just a baby. Right? Your cataracts are gone. Like, he doesn't do anything. <laughs> Just sits there. But Simeon says, I can die because I've seen salvation. Everything God does, he does in seed form. The world doesn't want things to start with seeds. We want to see the big. We want to see what we, can, what we can figure out. We want to see something that looks big when we see it. But everything God does starts small and grows big. He calls that seed. You know, the Bible says one of the eternal laws that was set in place before sin and it'll be in place long after. It says as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. That's, that's God's way of doing things. He didn't start that when the world fell. He's always done it. That's how he does it. He starts with seeds, and, and Jesus said the kingdom of God, in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of God is like a little tiny mustard seed that starts out small. It's the smallest seed that you have, but it grows, and it grows, and it takes over the whole garden. I don't know if you've seen a mustard bush, but they don't take over the garden, but this one does. He says it's like a small seed that grows and grows and takes over everything. And then he says, and again, it's like, a little bit of yeast that you put in the dough and just a, just a little peck. And you put it in and you work it throughout and pretty soon it's worked its way throughout the whole lump of dough. So God continually, Jesus can, compares his kingdom to something very tiny, which is what nobody's looking for. Nobody's looking for tiny. Nobody wants a tiny kingdom. Everybody wants a big kingdom with big horses and big swords and, and, and give me something that I can see and marvel at. 
But who's willing to go and worship a baby? Who's willing to hold a baby and say, I've seen it? It's the people of faith. And the reason I bring this up this morning is not just so you better understand the Christmas story. It's so that you better understand your own life. Because everything good God's going to do in your life is going to start with a seed. It's all going to start with a seed. And there's two ways that's going to happen. Number one, it's going to, it's going to start with the things, the seeds he planted. And you're going to, you're, the, the temptation is to overlook them. But if you'll honor that seed he planted and the things he started before they become big, then, then you'll be a part of that. You'll, you'll be invested in it. And the second kind of seed that you need to pay attention to is the seed that God's given you to sow. I think about the kid who had just a basket of, of, just a little basket with some bread and some fish. And Jesus is saying, you know, we've got to feed 5,000 men and their families. So whatever you think the math on that is, you figure it out. It's a lot of people. And they've got no food for them because these people follow Jesus to a remote area where there are no fast food restaurants. There is, there's no food anywhere. And they're all hungry. And he says, we've got to feed these people. The disciples are saying, we've got to feed these people. And Jesus says, well, you feed them. And they said, well, we don't have, even if we had the money, where are we going to get all this food? So Jesus is ready to do this miracle. And then this little boy comes. And Jesus doesn't make the food come out of nowhere. He, he takes something. Jesus, or sorry, this little boy brings a basket with some fish and some bread and gives it to Jesus. Most of us here this morning would be embarrassed to do that. You know we would? I would be embarrassed to bring a basket with just a few fish and bread and say, here, this will take care of the thousands. See, we're looking for the person that swoops in and says, I'll cover it, put it on my tab. I got it. Where's that guy? That guy's not here. There's a reason that it, I don't think that there, I don't think that there's only one person that has a little bit of food. I think that there's probably a few people that have some lunch kits or, or some extra food stashed away, but everybody's too embarrassed because it, it's not even going to make a dent. Right. Why would I give that to Jesus? He's going to look at me and go, really, seriously? I have to feed thousands. Thanks. <laughs> what good is this going to do? Everybody's embarrassed. Everybody is ashamed of the little they have. It's, it's not enough. So we need a move. We need something bigger. We need somebody to rally the troops. We need to make a call. What are we going to do? But a little boy has no shame. He just comes and says, here's what I have. Jesus takes it. And I want you to pay attention to what Jesus does. He takes this bread and these fish that is nowhere near the, what they need, right? It's nowhere near. And the Bible says the first thing he does is gives thanks. He thanks God. He thanks God. You know, so many of us, we'll thank God when the last cent comes in. We'll thank God when it's done in our eyes. Jesus thanked God for a really, really insufficient offering. That was bad English, but whatever. He thanked God for something that didn't even come close to matching the budget. Meeting the, meeting the need. He thanked God for something that was so small, most of us would, we would feel the opposite of thankful. We'd feel resentful. And when you're really believing God, like, God, this need has to be met. Somebody gives you an envelope and says, God told me to give this to you. And in your head you go, finally. 
here's the check. And you open it up and it's $5. And if you don't watch your heart, you're mad. But you're mocking me now, God? Haha, <laughs> very funny. $5, thanks. That'll pay the postage. Thanks, God. Thanks for $5. It's not enough. Lord, I thought you were going to meet my need, and this is what you gave me. Jesus valued the seed. He said, I can do something with this. And before he blessed it, before he multiplied it, he said, thank you, Father. You see, I'm sure he thanked the kid, but he realized that God used the kid. And if you're too proud to value the seed that God put in your hand, you'll never give it away. You'll never give it away because it seems so insufficient. It seems so small. It seems so just, it seems stupid that I would give this God. I know it's not enough. And I want you to do what Jesus did. Thank God. Whether you're on the giving end or the receiving end, go, he can do a lot with a little. He starts with seeds. Everybody's waiting for this baby to grow up and do something, but the people who believed God, they valued this child for who he was before they saw who he was. They they just know he is. Not that he's someday going to be the Messiah. You notice the angels don't say, someday this baby will grow up to be the Savior. He'll grow up to be the Messiah. He'll grow up to be Christ the Lord. No, they said, he is Christ the Lord. He is the Savior. You see, a, a seed is, I mean, the seed that God gives us and the seed that God plants in us and the seed that God uses, it's not someday going to be something. It is something. You just don't see it. And many wise people have said this, and and so it's worth repeating that you can open an orange and you can count how many seeds are in that orange. You can lay them all out on the counter and count them. But take one orange seed and tell me how many oranges are in that seed. You don't know. You don't know how many oranges are in that seed. A seed contains way more. You realize that the seed doesn't contain another seed. It contains a whole tree. The roots are in there. The leaves are in there. The branches are in there. Everything's in, the fruit's in there. Everything. And we look at it and we go, this is not what I'm praying for. I'm praying for an apple tree. This is not an apple tree. But God says, but the apple tree is in there. The apple tree is in there. Will you value it for what it is? There's a great scripture in Zechariah. God is talking to Zerubbabel, the man who's supposed to rebuild the temple after it's been broken down by invading armies, after everything's been abandoned. And exiles, after 70 years, they come back to their homeland and the walls are busted down and the buildings are all gone and the temple, the glorious temple that Solomon built, it's, it's, it's in ruins. And Zerubbabel takes it upon himself. I'm supposed to rebuild this. I'm the guy that's going to rebuild this. I'm I'm the guy that's going to rebuild this place. And Nehemiah, of course, is rebuilding the walls. But Zerubbabel has said, you know, I'm supposed to finish the temple. And he gets sort of into it, and he doesn't have the money or the resources or the people, and the temple's not being built. Sure enough, like clockwork, there's people that stop by and go, seriously? This is what you're doing? He's mocked. He's, 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 He's discounted. And then the prophet has a, a dream, a vision. And, and the first part is about the nation of Israel and how God's going to take their 
dirty clothes and give him clean clothes and give him authority back and, and restore what was been taken. But then he turns to Zerubbabel and God says to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, you're going to rebuild this. You're going to finish what you started. He said, it's not going to be by might. It's not going to be by your power. It's going to be by my spirit, says the Lord. And he says, and you're going to take, you're going to see what, you're going to look at that mountain that's in front of you and say, what are you, great mountain? Before me, you're going to become a plain. And he says, you're going to put the final finishing stone on top with shouts of grace, grace to it. And he says, for who has despised or discounted the days of small things? Who has cast aside the days of small things? Well, the answer is most people. Most people discount the small things, not knowing that the small things will become the big things. Consider something. When something is dead, this pulpit is dead. It's not alive. We don't have to trim the glass that grows out of it. It is what it is. It will stay like this as long as we don't break it. It's not going to be bigger. It's not going to meet another pulpit and have a pulpit family. It is what it is. <laughs> it's dead material, which is good. Because if it was alive, it would start to stink at some point. You know, things would grow. We'd have to worry. About, we don't have, it, it is what it is. Most things around here are dead. This wood is dead. You know, the, that piano is made out of dead things. It makes beautiful sounds, but it's... It's not growing, it's not changing, it is what it is. If anything, everything is slowly moving through entropy to decay. Because that's what happens to dead things. They don't get better, they get worse. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a living God. See, what the world looks to are dead things. That's called idolatry. And God mocks it. He says, yeah, I love this. One of the prophets, God uses a prophet to say this to his people. He says, you guys realize you're going out into the woods and you find a tree and you cut down the tree and half of the tree, you say, this is firewood and it'll keep me warm in the winter. And the other half, you carve a face on it and say, this is God. <laughs> he says, you realize how dumb that is. And God is not kind in these, well, he's kind, but he's not, he's very blunt. If you don't think God uses sarcasm, you need to read the Old Testament. He uses some sarcasm. <laughs> he says, he says, you carve it and you go, oh, and you bow down and say, oh, this is God. The psalmist says, here's the problem. You're worshiping dead idols. And he said, they can't talk, they can't see, they can't smell, and those that worship them will become like them. In other words, the reason you can't hear God anymore the reason you can't see what he's doing, the reason your, your words have no effect anymore is because you're worshiping something that's dead. You're only as powerful as the thing you worship. You only have, I mean, you'll never surpass the very thing you worship. So God mocks them for worshiping something dead. That's idolatry. You made it. It's dead. But when something's alive, you see, a dead thing will stay the same size. So when we're worshiping a dead thing, we need it to be big right away. A big, giant, golden calf. Or maybe you put all your trust in weapons. Maybe you put your trust in chariots. Maybe you put your trust in weapons of siege and, and, and walls. Well, they need to be big and they need to be giant because they're going to save us. But if you're putting your trust in something living, it's not going to stay the same. It may start very small, but then grow. 
and spread and show up in unexpected places. If you're putting your trust in a living God, he's not going to be this, he's not going to look exactly the same all the time. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today and forever, but he won't always look the same. He's not always in the place you last left him. When we worship a dead God, we can leave him in the church, come back on Sunday and find him again. We can sing our dead songs and we can do our dead things and it'll always be the same. And we never have to, to open our eyes or open our ears or anything because everything's already laid out. But if we worship a living God, he doesn't stay in the church when we leave and wait for us to come back. He doesn't give us, he, he doesn't start things giant and say, well, here's a giant thing. See, it's obviously big. It can obviously save you. He often gives us something that looks insufficient and says, watch what it'll become. And here's what I believe that we find throughout Scripture over and over again. And here's why the Scripture tells us, the Bible tells us, that we should not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. I think most of us, well, I'm not going to say most of us, but many of us, what we're waiting for takes a lot longer because we keep discounting the seed. So because we keep discounting the seed, we have to start over, over, and over, and over again. Because you, the, you don't, it doesn't seem to be growing. So what do I do? I dig it up and look at it. Well, what's going on here? Why is it not growing? You know, Because I have no faith and no patience. Because, because I have no faith, I don't see what it is before I can see it with my eyes. And because I have no patience, I'm not willing to wait for it to become that thing. And when God sends a, a baby and says, this is the Messiah, he's not going to be, he is the Messiah, you have to see and you have to believe God based on what he says, not on what you see. Because there was nothing about Jesus. The Bible says he had no stately form or majesty. He did not look like a king. But he was. And I want you to pay attention to two types of seeds in your life. Pay attention to the seeds that God has planted or God has started and begin to value things before they are what you think they need to be. Little projects that don't seem like much. Little people that don't seem to like. Little places. Like the place that Jesus was born. Look around you and instead of wishing you were at another place, you know, somebody wise once said, I saw this quote the other day, quit comparing your beginning to someone else's middle. Well, that's often when we get in trouble, Right? Compare our tree to their tree. We're frustrated that we're not there. Well, they weren't always there. That's right. Can you value the seed that God's planted in you? Can you value the gifts that he's placed in you that aren't, maybe aren't fully developed? Can you value the people that are, still have rough edges and, 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 and they're not what they need to be, but someday they will? That's why Jesus stuck with the disciples. He saw who they were and he rejoiced. He, listen, he said things like, God, I'm so thankful that you revealed this to babies. He calls them babies. Now, I don't know if you, as a grown man or woman, want to be called a baby by your rabbi, but they were called babies. And, and Jesus, instead of saying, you, you, you silly little men, you're acting like babies, he goes, thank you, Father, for revealing this to babies. He realizes that Peter's not who Peter's going to be. He realizes that, 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 that James is John. John wants to burn villages down. And yet he knows John will later be called the apostle of love. 
He calls Peter rock before Peter shows any signs of being a rock. In fact, he calls Peter rock before Peter does the most cowardly thing he will ever do in his life. Jesus sees who people are, and he says this to Peter. He says, Peter, I know you. In fact, he says, Simon, I know you, Simon. I know who you are. But he says, you will be called Peter. What Jesus says to Peter is, I know who you are, but I also know who you're going to be. I want you to know that about Jesus. He knows who you are, and he's not afraid of who you are. He's not ashamed of who you are. He's not running away from who you are. He also knows who you're going to be. He knows the things he's planted in you. If you will treasure them and celebrate them. See, because that's what the shepherds were doing, right? They celebrated. I think one of the best things you can do is celebrate the seeds. Celebrate the beginnings. We're so used to celebrating the end, but why don't you start celebrating the beginning of something? That's what Jesus said. All the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner comes back. Before the sinners do one thing right, they come to the table and there's a party. If you would celebrate the small things, we would be a lot less critical. A lot less critical of someone that doesn't have it right yet. As a pastor, you learn to rejoice in the little things. You rejoice when someone gets something that may seem simple to everyone else, but to them, it's revelation. And you rejoice because you go, I know God put that in your heart. And we're all a mess to somebody. We're all a mess to somebody. But when you can look and you say, but God's working in them. God's moving in them. They're not... Where they are this week wasn't where they were last week. It's the work of God. The Bible says this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. We don't marvel at what the world marvels at. We marvel at the hand of God. We see God at work, and we say, praise the Lord. Because you're celebrating a seed. You're celebrating a seed. It's not what it is. It's not what it will be, but it is something. And in fact, when I celebrate a seed, I'm seeing through the eyes of faith. I'm like Abraham who sees the day of Jesus and rejoices even though I'll die millennia before he comes. Like Simeon who celebrates a baby and says, I've seen salvation. Like Anna who goes and tells her Bible study, I found him. Not one of us is going to be old enough or is young enough to see him do what he's going to do, but we found him. The other type of seed I want you to value. So first of all, value the seed of small things that God has planted. Secondly, value the seed that God's put in your hand and tells you to plant. Never be like the adults in the crowd who are so dignified that they're ashamed to bring their little to God. Value what he's put in your hand. Value what he's put in your hand. Value what he has given you. Listen, if there's a gift in you, you may have had a dream. Someday I'm going to preach in front of 10,000 people, a million. I'm I'm following the footsteps of great men like Reinhard Bonnke. I want to be like that guy. Well, don't wait until a million people show up to hear you speak. (laughs) Because if you wait for that, it'll never come. Talk to the two people who happen to be listening to you. Then the three, then the five. Then it goes back to three for a week. That's okay. (laughs) Value the seed in your hand. That's the one you have. Say, God gave me this seed. 
God supplies seed to the sower. God gave this to me. You know, little kids that give 10 cents in the offering. And I know if Jesus were doing what he did with the disciples when he walked the earth and looking and commenting on people's offerings, I'm sure he'd say something very similar about them that he said about that widow who gave less than a penny. She gave greater than everyone else because that's what she had. God doesn't judge the way we judge it. So you need to think about it like God thinks about it. You know, if you, if you say, listen, I want to help out this Christmas. I want to give to charities. I really can't. I don't have it. I, I, I don't know. We're, we're, we're really just struggling to make the bills. Well, find a lady's house that you can shovel the driveway. Find someone you can bless. Find the seed that God's given you. What has God given me? And it's small, but it's not small to God. Because the seed is alive. It'll become something else. It is something else already. Are we looking for a Messiah that's looking, a Messiah that looks like what we've told our kids to expect, a Messiah that's going to come with an army, and a Messiah that's going to come with horses and chariots, a Messiah that's going to come and be stronger than the Romans? Are we willing to look at a baby and say, this is it? Are we willing to humble ourselves and bow and kneel before a baby? Are we willing to, like the wise men, come to a toddler's house and bring him gifts and treat him like a king, even though he's not acting like a king and he doesn't look like a king? Will you treasure the seed that God has given you? Will you treasure the small things? Because the small things become great things. Stand with me and we're going to pray.